Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. So in last week's episode, I went on a road trip and interviewed Michael Kenna, literally one of my favorite photographers, his amazing black and white minimalist photos and landscapes. And it made me think a lot more about my own photography. No, no, I'm not going to try and be as good as Michael Kenna. Um, but it you should made certainly me think, try. I'll try. I will try. I good, certainly good. will. But I won't get there. I don't think. I don't have, um, I won't get there. I don't think. I, you know, one thing about being that kind of landscape photographer is you have to travel a lot. And I don't travel a lot. Well, so, that's true. That's true. I, but here, I, I'm going to be your, your, your little uh, angel on your shoulder that says, you don't want to be Michael Kenna. You want to be Kirk McElhern. Yes. Okay. But here's the thing. Okay. Um, a lot of people, creative people think that it's a good idea to emulate someone at some point to understand the technique and then move on from there. Excellent point. Um, yes. I'll put a link in the show notes. In fact, I've started writing a series of articles about Michael Kenna's composition. And I wrote an article on my website uh, last week about how he uses leading lines um, because it's, it's an element that's very common in his photography, particularly uh, we talked about one of the photos in the interview. I'll we'll remind everyone in the show notes. So anyway, it's useful to learn what other artists do to emulate it and then to break out on your own. Again, I don't like the word artist cause I'm nothing like that, but this made me think a lot more about my photography and about not just what I'm shooting, but what I'm doing with it afterwards. And I've mentioned many times on the podcast, I do most of my photo editing in Apple photos because it's good enough for me. But listening to Michael Kenna talk about how much time he spends in the darkroom printing photos and how carefully he prints them made me think, you know what, maybe there is something to that photo editing after all. I think there definitely is. Well, let's break this into a couple different things. I think in one case, there's editing where you want to touch up something or you want to fix something, right? You take a shot, it's a little bit overexposed or underexposed, and you can you can compensate for that. But then I think more of, of Michael Kenna's work and his darkroom work is more the sense of he has a vision and he is bringing out a vision artistically, in his case, doing the black and white processing on a shot that's already – artistic in the sense that he, you know, deliberately is is doing super long exposures and going for that that dreamy look. Well, they're not all long exposures, but many of them are. Right, right, right. And so a lot of the editing that I find myself doing is more in the former category, which is I've shot something, I know that it's a little underexposed, but I didn't want to blow out the highlights, for example. And so I'm going to go in and I'm going to boost the shadows or I'm going to add a little color saturation to a sunset to kind of make it pop a little bit more. And I guess that kind of counts as, you know, realizing a vision, quote unquote. It is, yeah. I, I would say that when you're talking about correcting things, it's retouching, it's cloning out something, it's maybe fixing the white balance. That's the correction. Once you get past that, then it is a creative process. And so what Michael Kenna does in the darkroom is he does dodging and burning. And what that means is that you either use a piece of paper to block part of the print as the light comes down. You're exposing prints on paper for a couple of minutes. So you can block some of the light or you can use a paper with a hole in it over certain areas to make more light come in. And this obviously changes the way the pictures are exposed. And if you look at a lot of his photos, 
Um, many of them seem to have vignettes or bits where the sky is dark in a sort of a curved form. And all of that is things that's done in the dark room. These aren't things that just come out of his Hasselblad magically like that. <laughs> so my conundrum was to choose the photos that I like the most and to try and give them a common look. When I shoot black and white, which is what I really like most. Sometimes it's high contrast. Sometimes it's not too high contrast. And I was thinking there has to be some more, some more uniformity in what I'm doing. When I shoot photos in cats, obviously it's different. It's not the same. <laughs> um, I do like shooting macro photos. So I would say if there's uniformity, it's in that in your face close up, um, not necessarily showing an entire flower, but getting in really close. But in the black and white, I wanted to figure out a way to make my photos hang together a little bit better to not just look at like a random selection of photos. Oh, that's super easy. You just use an Instagram filter. Done. Right. Okay, okay everybody. So- <laughs> that's it for this episode. Thank you very much. Well, you can use an Instagram filter or you can use filters in all sorts of apps. We're going to use Lightroom as the first example. Um, I decided to try Lightroom at 10 pounds a month and to see what I wanted. And one of the things that you mentioned to me was, you know, check out some of the presets and see how they work. And of course, presets they're the lazy person's way of editing photos. But if you apply a preset and then say, I like what that looks like, how did they do it? Then look at all the different adjustments and sliders and figure out how to do it because you can't apply the same preset to all your photos. You could, for example, if you're, I don't know, shooting a wedding outdoors, the light is consistent all throughout and you've got a thousand photos, you could apply the same preset because you're going to have the same conditions. But once conditions change, you can't. I'll also point out that uh, Lightroom has profiles, which are are different than presets. They give you the same idea in that you can change the look of your photo. But what's different about profiles, and, and one reason why I find myself using them more often, is that you can, say, give a monochrome look, but it doesn't change any of the sliders. And so then you can build on top of that. There's a good set of profiles for our Fuji cameras. Uh, one of them includes uh, Acros, which will give you a nice black and white look, and then you can build on that. So just want to make that difference because I think just in general, things are trending a little bit away from presets. Presets are the the way to automate something. Like you said, you have a shoot, you can make a preset and apply this to all the different shots. Um, whereas, uh, profiles and also let's, uh, look up tables, tables. color look up tables that that's also becoming more prevalent, um, will also give you different looks to work with. Yeah. So Lightroom does have what Fuji calls the film simulations. And it's one of the things I like most about the Fujifilm camera is that I can drop into Velvia to get something highly saturated, or I can go into Acros to get black and white, but more and more I'm going back to the raw files. Um, I'm, I'm getting my vision with those colors or black and white, uh, conversions, but I'm saying it's just not quite right. So I need to do it myself. Anyway, I decided I wanted to look into editing and Lightroom at 10 quid a month is, yeah, it's just a bit of a problem. Um, I'm going to give a quick list of the other apps that we're going to discuss. We're not going to discuss them all. We're going to talk about the idea of using an additional photo editing app. So I'm starting with Apple Photos as the basic app. And what's really practical is the Apple Photos library. And that's what, to me, is holding me into that ecosystem. There's also Affinity Photo, Luminar, Pixelmator Pro. There's Capture One, Alien Skin Exposure, Pictorial, P-I-C-K-Torial, 
ON1 Photo Raw and Raw Power by Gentleman Coders. We had Nick Bott on a few episodes ago. Nick wrote an article for Tidbits recently how non-destructive editing works with photos. And non-destructive editing is essential because with all of these apps, you want to be able to work on your file, whether it's RAW or JPEG, but be able to go back to that original file if you don't like what happened. Now, this is pretty much always the case with RAW files, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. The raw file is just the sensor data. It hasn't right. been interpolated at all by the camera. And so that's why oftentimes in all of these programs, when you open a raw file, there's some sort of a delay because the program has to generate a JPEG from that data. Now, in some cases that gets done when you import it. Uh, sometimes like in, in Photoshop, it opens the separate uh, Adobe camera raw window. But that has to be done every time because it's it's just reading ones and zeros and, and values like like it's all math right there. Right. On the other hand, if you import JPEGs into a photo editing app, you still want it to be non-destructive. So you can go back to that original JPEG that you imported in case you don't like the changes you made. And we're not talking about just pressing command Z undo. We're talking about a week later when you reopen the photo to be able to revert to original or whatever each app calls it. That's the key point. Sometimes you'll have an app that will save the history. So you can actually step back through and say, wow, I need to uh, really change the exposure here, but not affect my color saturation. That article by Nick in Tidbits is, is a great example to show how Photos does it, which is basically Photos will make the edit and then you can just revert back to the original and start over. Yeah, it, it won't, is a bit limited won't necessarily for that. save all that. Yeah. Or what you can do is you can export the original and import it again as a new photo and potentially try and match what you've done on a previous one with the difference of, say, exposure, highlight shadows or whatever. Yeah. And in a lot of other applications, there are options to either make virtual copies or actual copies. So you, you duplicate something and then you can work side by side to see what you did before or, you know, give it a completely different look. Yeah. So I do that with photos. Sometimes I'll import a raw image and I'll work on it in color, but then I'll duplicate it and work on it in black and white so I can see which one I prefer. Yeah. Okay. So out of this list, the first three that came to mind after Lightroom and, and Lightroom, the problem for me is the Adobe Industrial Complex um, paying every month and dealing just with all the Adobe issues. It's like I, oh, Adobe just has, I just, every time I hear Adobe, I think Flash Player. <laughs> and Flash Player and malware, and you have to update your Flash Player again. The most interesting thing about this discussion to me is that I don't think we would be talking about a lot of these others if it wasn't for Adobe. And not just because Adobe has been like the big gorilla with Photoshop, with Lightroom. Um, you know, Lightroom kind of kicked Aperture into the curb, but this whole move toward subscriptions. I've written about a few of these other programs uh, and about Lightroom for DP Review. And what's interesting about dpreview.com, it has a very active commenter uh, community. And I say that in the best possible way. It also means that there's some just really, really enthusiastic, uh, <laughs> sometimes rude, sometimes opinionated. fanatical, opinionated yeah. people on there. But it's funny that anytime Adobe comes up, this this becomes an issue because people are like, I'm never giving Adobe another cent because they don't let me own my software, blah, blah, blah. I honestly thought that that after Adobe started implementing these subscriptions. I thought there'd be like a year or so where people would grumble, but 
they're still good tools. They're still going to use them and they'll just sort of accept them and, and move on. And I honestly think that the reason that we have all these others, pictorial, alien skin exposure, like, like all these that you just mentioned is in large part because of Adobe adopting this model. In fact, Luminar, alien skin exposure, pictorial, I'm sure some of the others, part of their main marketing message is this is a good tool and you can pay once for it and you won't have to pay anything until we do another major revision. And it's specifically addressed at this subscription issue. So I'm curious, Kirk, is it just because the subscription and you just didn't want to keep paying for it or? That's a large part of it. I find Lightroom to be quite complicated and I didn't even start messing with Photoshop. I find the, the learning curve to be extremely steep. Um, I don't find it to be incredibly user-friendly, but once I got to the end of the two week free trial, I said, you know, I just don't want to commit to this. It's just, I yeah. didn't feel comfortable with it. Which, which Lightroom did you do? Classic. The, the classic. Okay. The good one. Okay. <laughs> because the other one doesn't do enough for, for what I need. Well, see, all right. I'm going to push back slightly, not just because I've written a book about it, but because I actually use Lightroom, sorry, Lightroom CC, which is now called Lightroom. They they keep messing with the naming. Uh, so there's Lightroom and there's Classic. So I've actually been using Lightroom since it came out. That's my main editor and my main library. And I actually like it. And I think it it addresses some of those things that you mentioned in terms of complexity. Adobe very deliberately... I don't want to say dumbed down, dumbed down although yes. I just did. Yes. Uh, they they deliberately designed it to be more friendly because, you know, you, you're right. Classic is intimidating and for good reason. Classic does a lot. I mean, th- there's a lot of power. There's a lot of feature. I think most of the core features in Lightroom Classic are also there in the regular Lightroom and they're adding features. You can do panoramas and HDR now. but that said, I totally understand what you mean. It's like walking into a big crowded party and you don't know anybody. Like you have to like get familiar with the room. You have to figure yeah. out how things work. You have to find out which side of the bar do you start at? Yes. Good point. I'm going to stop on this terrible metaphor now. <laughs> and I think we're going to take a break. Good idea. And maybe I'll go get something to drink because it's after 6 p.m. here. And we'll come back in a minute and we'll talk a little bit more about Lightroom and these other apps. reason I think that Lightroom kind of irked me was that I do want to keep my library in Apple Photos. And here's my thought, that I would do most of my editing in Apple Photos, and then I would move into another app to do things that Apple Photos couldn't do. Or if I found that Apple Photos just wasn't right for a specific photo, I would edit the photo there, export a JPEG, and put it into Photos. So I've got it in my library. It's in the cloud. I can access it, and I can manage my photos like that. And 
it's not even the editing stuff in Lightroom. It's the cataloging, the importing that's already confusing. I don't want to make this an episode about Lightroom, though. I want to move on and talk about some of the others, because I can see from your expression that you wanted to give me a lesson in using the Lightroom catalog, <laughs> but we'll do this some other time. Um, there are three apps that I own and that I've bought for a variety of reasons. One is Affinity Photo, one is Luminar, and one is Pixelmator. They recently came out with a Pixelmator Pro, and I've downloaded a demo of that. I think Affinity Photo is like the big competition for Lightroom on the Mac. It's the one that does a whole bunch of stuff that's really gets good reviews. Um, they've got tons of video tutorials, but they don't really have a manual. I mean, I bought their book a while ago. It was one of my snapshot picks and it kind of helpful, but it didn't really get me over the hump of some confusing choices in the interface. I mean, yeah, they call things personas instead of modes or modules. And the mere fact that you have to develop a raw image before you move on to additional editing in Affinity Photo for me is a deal breaker. You can't go back and undevelop it. Whereas in Lightroom, you're in the develop mode and you're doing all your stuff and then you're doing your edits and you still can go back. In other words, you're you're editing on top of the developing and it's not a separate it's not a separate process. Yeah. I think the key distinction here is I would say Affinity is much more of a competitor to Photoshop than it is to Lightroom because Lightroom was really designed as a way to, to to do what you just said, like to not have to develop everything first and then edit on top of it. Right. Because that's, okay. that's the Photoshop model. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it uh, Affinity has a lot of power to it. Um, it does not have like that library component. It, it turns out if you look at the the scope of all of these, putting together a library is hard. I mean, Luminar, for example, they had promised a big library edition by the end of last year. And what they delivered was pretty short of, of what they had pretty promised. Pretty short of big? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, there is a library, but there are a lot of features that haven't been implemented yet. But we're not talking about libraries. We're, not, we're talking about editing. So yeah. Well, Affinity no, photo. Wait, no, 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 oh, no. Okay. Let's be honest. Libraries is a part of it. If I found is, an app that, that I liked for editing and that I also liked their library, I might be tempted to use it. Again, I'm kind of stuck in the Apple ecosystem for all of the reasons that are obvious, because, you know, I write about Apple like you. Yeah, um, yeah. But I could be tempted to import my photos directly into another library and then just export them to put them into photos to have them in the cloud. So the the library is not not important, but it wouldn't sway me to choose an app to use. Right. Um, so I find Affinity Photo a bit frustrating, a bit. I don't know. You know that thing, maybe you go into a restaurant, you're not quite dressed right. That's <laughs> how I feel. That it's not really for me because I'm just not smart enough to use it. I get that. They're trying so hard to not be Photoshopped that I think they, they went a little far in the other direction. Coming back to the libraries, though, one distinction that I want to make here is with photos in Lightroom, you have a managed library. And... Part of that is also the cloud component of it, uh, which I think ultimately is a good strategic differentiator because it's something, for example, I like using Lightroom because I can edit things on my iPad and it it works just as well. For people who, who really aren't interested in that or, or not interested in having one app that sort of manages everything, I would 
take a look at something like pictorial or alien skin exposure X4. And what those do, they have library uh, components, but they're not trying to manage everything for you. They're just looking at what's in your current directory. So let's say you already have a system set up. You have your own organizational system in the Finder. And what they will do is those apps will just look at what's there and still be able to edit and keep a history and all of that. But they're not trying to uh, manage everything from a central location. And in fact, they're really good at, for example, you could have uh, photos on a network attached storage and they will automatically mount that. So for somebody who wants something that's not photos, that's not Lightroom and doesn't want to find something that's trying to do all the the management for them, some of these other tools are really good in that in that respect. One thing that irked me about Affinity Photo and that also irks me about Luminar is that if I open a photo and I make some edits and then I have to save the photo and the photo that is, well, my raw photos are about 50 megabytes and then it's 100 or 200 megabytes in the saved file for Affinity Photo or Luminar. And yeah. that's a bit onerous. That takes up an awful lot of space. And I, is it saving intermediate photos at different stages? I don't understand why there's so much, you know, yeah. why, what is it doing? So in some of those cases, it's saving an edit history. It's probably saving perhaps some JPEG thumbnails. There's there's a lot there because it's making that assumption that you're just going to go to that file. The most recent version of Luminar by itself, Luminar 3, doesn't do that anymore because it has that library module. And so uh, it, that's if you use the library module, it's going to save everything basically in its own library. Even if you're not using libraries to manage, you're opening things, it's tracking where the file is, it's saving uh, your edits to its library. And then when you export, it'll, it'll create a finished file. Now there's also uh, Luminar Flex and that's basically like the plug-in version of Luminar. It's worth pointing out that with Apple's photo editing extensions, some of these apps will also work. So I'm opening a photo in Photos here, and since I have Affinity Photo installed, it gives me a number of it gives me a number of options in the extension menu. It gives me Affinity Develop, Affinity Haze Removal, Liquify, Miniature Monochrome Retouch, and Edit in Affinity Photo. Uh, I can also access Luminar 3 here. I cannot, however, access Pixelmator Pro, but I was told that this will be in the next update of Pixelmator Pro. Um, there are certainly other apps that are available like this, though I don't have them installed. Um, the The editing extensions thing is interesting, but when you go into another app and do your edits and then bring it back into Photos... Well, you can't step back from those edits unless you go back to the original. So ideally, you'd want to make a duplicate in photos before you move into that editing mode. In some cases, pictorial and alien skin exposure, they have different ways of saving the metadata. So for example, with Exposure X4, it's this very clever thing where they are saving all of all of that information, all, all the, the editing information in your history gets saved into a special sidecar metadata file that gets written to the same directory as your, your image. And so you don't necessarily need to duplicate the image and, and jump back because even though you don't have a centrally managed library, you can still go back in and access your edit history, even as a plugin, which is kind of, as, kind of long as, you, as long as you maintain that file in the right folder. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. So then you, I guess that's, that's not that much different from having a file that's in, because uh, these files that these apps save are actually packages. They're kind of folders with a special extension. They contain the original files plus other information. Some um, of them, not well, all of them. Not If it's not a sidecar file, right? Yeah. Yeah. See, this gets confusing. Part of this is, I would say for what you're doing, just abandon Affinity Photo. It has a lot of power. But I think it's more confusing than you need, especially when you're talking about having to like save and a a file in its own format. I would much rather go with something that has a sidecar file. Right. Okay. So the the three apps that I started looking at were Affinity Photo, Luminar, and Pixelmator Pro, yeah. and they all have that individual saving. Luminar just kind of irks me by it's just <laughs> like when you. I mean, on the one hand, it's pretty good the way the basic adjustments are, but then you add filters and you have all these filters of things like AI sky enhancer, which actually is pretty cool. It um, is dramatic actually. and fog <laughs> and golden hour. But yeah, some of them are pretty cool. And, and that's what's kind of, it's like on the one hand, I kind of like that because it simplifies the kind of things that would be more complicated in Photoshop. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, there's something a bit, cheap about the way it looks. I know exactly what you mean. And full disclosure, I'm in the middle of writing a book about Luminar for Rocky Nook. And part of this is... We should have you on the show when you finish your book. We should. We should. We'll see if I'm available. (laughs) So what's neat about Luminar, and I think it, it also hampers them a little bit, is they're trying to appeal to everybody. And yes, every application wants to appeal to everybody in some way. But um, so you you mentioned these filters. So for people who haven't used Luminar, what Luminar does is rather than just having like a basic tone set of controls where you do brightness and contrast and whites and blacks and all that, what you do is you apply filters that do specific things. So, well, they do have that basic stuff. They do have the basic stuff, but they also have the basic stuff. They have like several versions of the basic stuff. So there's like, there's like a develop filter that has those basics, but then there's also a brightness contrast filter yeah. and you could apply more than one brightness co- yeah. contrast filter. So it's like, there's a lot of flexibility. In fact, too much flexibility, especially if you're not yet in the groove of how it wants to work. And so you sort of end up with that, that Lightroom classic problem where you're like, there's, there's so much here. How do I know? If I should use this develop filter versus brightness contrast, should I use white balance or should I use the color panel? Like those sorts of things. There's a lot of power there and it does some really cool stuff, but it's also a bit cluttered. Okay. So one thing I like about Luminar, and this is influenced by seeing Michael Kenneth's prints. He has a very slight sepia tone in his prints, Mm. very slight. You can use the Luminar split toning filter. Uh, I've set the hue to about 38, which is a light orange. I've set the saturation to anywhere between four and 12, depending on the photo. And what I like is it gives my photos a body that doesn't look cold, like black and white can look cold. It has a tiny bit of warmth and it's really easy to do with other apps. Adding that kind of sepia tone is much more complicated. And this is split toning where it applies to the highlights or the shadows. Um, Generally, if you're going to sepia tone something, you don't really want it in the shadows because it's not going to show up. And a lot of times the CP Tony is so heavy handed that it just looks like it's trying to Look be at a, Apple's sepia. 
Yeah, filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like way, way, way too much. So having that subtlety is definitely a good thing. Plus, Skylum, the company that used to be Mac Fun, they used to have a tool called Tonality that was really yeah. good just for doing black and whites. And and I think some of that, I don't know if all of that has made its way into Luminar. It hasn't, but it was one of my snapshot picks a couple of weeks ago. That's you right. Can that's download right. the presets to import them into Luminar. Mm-hmm. You do have a lot of interesting black and white choices, which is something I know you're looking for. Well, in particular, yeah, because I really want to shoot black and white. It's it's just worth saying one thing. It's a little bit humorous. You know, Apple's sepia toning, you were saying it's heavy handed. Hmm. Um, a, a few days after the Michael Kenna interview, we'd been emailing back and forth and he sent me a photo he took in the darkroom with his iPhone with the sepia filter on. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny because it's it's just way too much sepia. Um, you know, he wasn't spending time to edit the photo. It was just like, Hey, I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm making prints of this. Here's what it looks like. But that he does it in black and white with sepia tone on his iPhone is kind of funny. <laughs> um, but it is, it is too much. It, it looks wrong. Yeah. Okay. This has been going on for a long time. Let's just quickly walk through the other apps. You know them better than me. Capture one. Um, I believe capture one. Is that the one that's camera specific? So they have a, a Fujifilm specific app. Capture One will work with just about anything, but they also have a version that's been tailored for Fuji cameras. The software, I believe, came out of needing to support some like big high format or, or medium format, basically big cam- big super expensive cameras that are that are made for studio work. So like phase one, which are very expensive professional yeah, media yeah, yeah. format. Same company actually. Phase one yeah. owns them or or maybe phase one bought Capture One. I, I can't remember. But basically it was really designed for like studio work and then they they expanded out. I, I reviewed an older version for Macworld a while ago. I'll put in the show notes. That's a really good application. And I know that people who use Fuji cameras tend to like the way it processes Fuji RAWs. I think a a lot of the other applications are now better about that. But there was a time where Adobe's processing of Fuji RAWs was really kind of It's because because Fuji uses a different sensor. Exactly. um, And that means that they have to be processed differently. Capture One has specific versions for Fujifilm and for Sony. Um, what's interesting is that you can buy the software outright. You can buy it with three style packs. You can buy it with six style packs, or you can pay a subscription. So they have a monthly subscription plan as well. Yes. Um, there's a pro version, which is 20 pounds a month or 417 for the six style packs or the, the Fujifilm perpetual license. The cheapest one's 109. So they have like a whole matrix of products. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out some of these others have some subscription options. And even though there are people who hate subscriptions because of of Adobe, um, it is a model that works. And so what's actually nice to see is that companies like this, and I know Pictorial did this in their last update, they do have a subscription model, but they also have standalone models. So Adobe was just like, nope, subscription, that's it. We're going to support some old things for a while. And some of these other companies are, I think, listening to their audience more and saying, okay, you can absolutely do a subscription. It helps us out. You know, we have uh, continuing revenue to develop new versions. And as we release new versions, you get the newest one automatically, boom. But if you can just use one version and that's going to do you for three years, just buy that one, spend 60 or 70 bucks or whatever it is. And 
stick with that and then you can evaluate later. So I applaud them for having lots of different options. So alien skin exposure, and I've tried this, if I'm not mistaken, this is the one with literally hundreds of presets and you can go through film emulations and all sorts of variations like that, kind of like visco filters. Yeah, very, very powerful. If you really like film simulations and you're looking for a specific uh, make of Kodak film and you want your your photos to look like that, Alien Skin Exposure is great for that. Their latest update does a lot more. It's more in line with a lot of these other general photo editing packages. It does a lot. Funnily enough, one of the things that I run into when I use it is there's no auto button. And I know some of these. I like that. I like it too. And even just to see what sort of settings the software thinks should happen, and then you reset that and then work on your own. At one point, the idea was, well, if you're a pro, you don't need auto because you already know what you're doing. And I know what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily want to go and and start over with my whites and my exposure and all those sliders. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance. Yeah. ON1 Photo Raw, I'm looking at it now. It's kind of interesting because they have a full version, an upgrade version, and then they have a subscription version, which includes the ON1 Skills Course Bundle, which I assume is just video tutorials. And then at the bottom of the page, our commitment to you, no subscription. When you purchase ON1 Photo Raw, you receive a perpetual (laughs) license, but they're selling a subscription to the training. I think ON1 came out with this as a Lightroom competitor, and they have sort of been playing catch up. And I will admit I've not used the recent version, but I do know some photographers who who love it. And again, they they like it because it is something that's not Adobe, but still gives them a lot of the, the same features and power. So Raw Power, uh, Nick Bot was on here and he talked about that. It's really a great app, but I don't feel entirely comfortable with it. It feels to me like the app for me in a year or two, when I've learned more about photo editing, it doesn't seem as easy to access like Luminar, you know, you want to filter and it does this. And in most cases, the filters work. That's a really good way of putting that. I think in a year when you become more of a power editor, because it is raw power, it's, it's really designed to go above and beyond photos. Yeah. And a lot of it is the same as photos or, or similar to photos, but it's true that it makes me kind of feel like, I mean, you can't do anything wrong. You can always undo something, but I've, I've just not felt comfortable with it. And you've talked a lot about pictorial, which I've never tried. And I'm looking at it here and it looks like it's probably similar to other apps in the way it, I mean, they all really offer the same tools. Oh, they have a subscription, $4.99 a month. There you go. Yeah. You can get a free version, two local adjustments per image or $4.99 a month for their premium version. So they've gone the subscription route, but at half the price of Adobe. That's an excellent point where a a lot of these, they really do a lot of the same things. Look at it, not from the software side, but from the image side, there are things that you want to do. You want to do tonal adjustments and color and, and all of that. And so when you're evaluating all these, and I believe all of these have some sort of, of evaluative test drive, definitely get taken for a spin, but you really do want to find something that you're comfortable using, something that you're not going to feel like you're completely lost. I think if you were jumping from photos to one of these immediately and you you might feel a little lost with all of them, but there are definitely some that you're just going to you're just going to grok more 
you know, whether it's interface or the types of edits you get out of it, you'll definitely find a preference. In some ways, Luminar has training wheels because they have all of these filters that can help you say, oh, hey, interesting, polarizing filter. Um, Let's see how that looks. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the other apps don't. They might have these filters and presets and you click them and you see what happens and you work from there. But Luminar kind of gives you the best of both that you can either do things manually or add these filters. I just, I just don't feel comfortable with that app though. It just seems like there's something wrong with it. I mean, (laughs) nothing against the people making Luminar, but it seems like somehow it's just a bit too, I don't know, just not serious. I will say that it actually does a lot more than you think it does. Yeah. Which I think. And there's so much, it's hard to find what it does. Yes. As a quick example, uh, some of these applications let you work in layers. Okay. So like Lightroom does not. Lightroom, the idea is you're just going to edit the image and, you know, it's like for simplicity's sake, that that's nice. But sometimes you want different layers. You want to have things that you can build on, especially if you have like maybe a Photoshop background. But layers add a completely different level of complexity. And in, in Luminar, layers can be super powerful, but they can also be super confusing. And in Affinity Photo, you have to use layers for certain yes. of the adjustments. And I find that really confusing. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on because this has been really long. It's a lot longer than we really need to. <laughs> um, it's time for snapshots, isn't it? I think it's time for snapshots. Yes. My snapshot is two different apps for the iPhone based on a recent experience. I went camping and I wanted to catch the sunset. And so I pulled out uh, TPE, the Photographer's Ephemeris, which the company has sponsored past episodes and we've talked about it before. And I was using that to look at where the sun was going to be and what direction it was going to come from for the sunset. And a friend of mine who is not even a photographer, he just likes AR stuff. He said, well, why don't you do the, the AR mode? And I was like, the what? So TPE has this AR mode, um, augmented reality, which when you turn it on, it turns on the camera. So you're seeing your scene, but then it will superimpose the sun where it's going to be at the certain time. So rather than standing, looking at a top-down map and you're trying to figure out exactly where the sun's going to be coming, like you can just move your phone around and see exactly where the sun is going to be at that time. I felt very embarrassed that I didn't know that because I've been using this app for years, but <laughs> sometimes you need to explore the yes. apps. And yes. then r- related to that is an app called Peak Visor, and it's also an AR app. And what it does is it knows where you are, obviously because of GPS. And what you do is you line it up with mountain peaks that are on the horizon, and it will tell you what those peaks are. And I love that because I can never remember, I know where Mount Rainier is because it's really big and really distinctive, but, you know, other mountain ranges, I have no idea. And so it's nice to have that, take a snapshot and be able to say, oh, okay, this is a sunset at, you know, Mount Squishy or whatever it is. (laughs) I like Mount Squishy. I've been there. So uh, TPE uh, revisited and Peak Visor. Kirk, what are your snapshots today? Well, I'm going to have two snapshots since you had two. Um, I bought a new (laughs) camera last week. Oh? Yes, I'm going to hold it up for you. It's a Holga. 
Is that even a camera or is it, that a toy? It's a toy camera. It's a Holga. Again, it's after a Holga, talking with Michael Holga. Kenna and seeing his Holga photos, and he's done a whole book of Holga photos. I picked that as a snapshot sometime last year. I yeah. figured 30 pounds for a camera. It will wow. take pictures. It's lo-fi. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain something about that lo-fi, about the imperfection. Um, Michael Kenna said, I think he has a dozen of them and he would, you know, just, he would like the way that they were all different. So I figured I will get back into film. And my second choice is a bunch of Ilford HP5 120 medium format film, um, which I got in the mail today. And I will put that into my Holga and I will take some film pictures and see what happens. Wow. I am only recently acquainted with, with Holgas, even though I think everybody in the world knows what a Holga is. Basically, it's like a camera that's just inexpensively made i mean it's aren't a these the ones camera. that are famous for for light leaks and light leaks and vignetting and uneven okay. lenses but sometimes these things can i mean there's instagram filters that do things like that are based that. on this yeah yeah and there is an interesting image and, and seeing michael kenna's photos and again seeing some of the prints in that exhibit that were made on a holga it's like if this guy who shoots a hasselblad thinks the holga is good enough for some of his photos why not yeah. Um, and it's a cheap way to get back into film. I've actually never shot 120 film. I've shot 35 millimeter or 110. Um, mm-hmm. 120 is two and a quarter inch square medium format. You know, 35 millimeters, like half the size of 120. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to walking around and it's like, I'm going to have to get into that mindset where, okay, do I really want to take this picture? Because at five pounds a roll of film and another six pounds to process for, we're talking about a pound per picture between the film and the processing just for negatives, that means you're going to think twice before you take a picture, which might not be a bad thing. Can't you just get a USB-C adapter? Put the <laughs> yeah, film I tried to get that one, but <laughs> mine, mine doesn't have a USB port. So. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> um, and, and I could actually do the development of the film myself. Developing negatives, black and white negatives, is not complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even need a dark room. You need a, I don't know what they call that bag that you put things in that's dark and you just do it oh, without yeah. looking. Um, you put the film onto a spool, you put it into a, a, a can, you pour the chemicals. But I've got allergies. I don't want to mess with chemicals. I'm, I'm looking forward to some, uh, what, some scans of your, your Holga's well, later. Well, I, I actually S- bought scans a new or- scanner. I bought a new scanner because I, I wanted a better, I just had a cheap scanner. And I okay. bought one that can scan negatives as well. Um, and so I actually have a whole bunch of uh, snapshots for the next few weeks. I have a new scanner, some great new photo books. Um, so I won't have to search for snapshots for our next few episodes. Perfect. Perfect. I look forward to them. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's Photoactive Cast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast.